Hello friends! Welcome to Feeling This Life. We're a family support podcast that dives deep into the triumphs, challenges, and strategies that are part of the lives of those who care for children with blindness and visual impairments. I'm Paige Maynard, and I'm an early interventionist and teacher of the visually impaired at VIPS, Visually Impaired Preschool Services. And I'm Dr. Kathy Smith, Director of Research at Anchor Center for Blind Children in Denver, Colorado. I'm Jenny Castanier. I am the Family Services Coordinator at VIPS, and my youngest child has a visual impairment. I'm excited to bring you my interview with Meredith Howe. Meredith is the Director of Development at VIPS. Her daughter Lola is 12 years old and is a former VIPS student. When this podcast became a reality, Meredith was one of the first people I wanted to interview. I hope her story will encourage you as much as it has encouraged me. I'm honored to be able to share Lola's story and where we're at in this journey. My husband and I were actually living in Costa Rica. My parents lived there, and so my husband and I decided that we were going to live there as well. And so after a few years, we decided that we wanted to have a baby. In January of 2011, I um, gave birth to a baby girl named Lola, and we had her in a Costa Rican hospital, one that did not have many English-speaking nurses or doctors. So I had questions very early on about her vision because when Lola was born, she didn't make any eye contact with me. And I had always heard about how mother and child would make eye contact and that bond would form, but Lola didn't look at me. It was as if she looked right through me. And so we decided that we would just continue on. And the doctor said that nothing was wrong. But then at four months of age, she started having these strange movements and what we would later find out were infantile spasms, which was a rare and catastrophic form of epilepsy. And then at seven months of age, she was diagnosed with cortical visual impairment, which is a brain-based visual impairment. Unfortunately, learned that her vision was going to be much different than ours. And that was very difficult to accept early on, especially because they couldn't really explain to us what she was seeing since it wasn't an ocular problem. It took place in her brain. But we started early intervention in Costa Rica, shockingly, and um, but knew long term we needed to be back in the United States for care for her because it was clear she was going to have other challenges. And so we moved back to Indianapolis in December of 2011 and started early intervention for her, um, got physical therapy, occupational therapy, all of those great early intervention programs. And then when it came to her vision, I couldn't find anything specific to her vision loss. It was not offered through first steps and felt lost. What do I do for my child who I knew could improve? her vision through early intervention. And so I continued on. And after a four month search, I finally found this woman named Annie Hughes, who had just retired from the school for the blind and visually impaired. And apparently was going to come out to my house and explain our daughter's visual impairment. And I'll never forget that day because it was a Tuesday morning and she came in and she had her ukulele and sat down on our floor and started singing the her signature hello song and 
my husband and I started tearing up and we just knew that in that moment, something was going to change for us because she just was so warm and inviting and he just came with knowledge and resources and tools and explained to us Lola's visual impairment and what we could do to help her improve and how to get her to use her other senses to navigate the world. And we learned more in that two hours than we had in the first year of her life. And so Annie came back and we were grateful for that. And early intervention began specific to her vision loss. And over that time, um, I literally watched Lola's brain learn how to see. It was nothing short of a miracle because of the interventions that challenged her brain that helped her brain create new neural pathways. And so it was amazing. And then we also got to go to support groups for families like ours and was the first time that we felt like we were not alone because, you know, it's a low incidence population. I didn't have friends that had kids who were visually impaired. My family, nobody could quite understand that. And so it felt very comforting to be around others who, who got it. And so eventually Lola would be diagnosed with a rare genetic disease called bosch boonstra shafe Optic Atrophy Syndrome. She was one of the first 20 in the world that had the diagnosis and it has caused a myriad of health challenges. She has additional visual impairments, optic nerve hypoplasia, nystagmus. She has optic atrophy, uh, had strabismus surgery. She also has autism, global delays, OCD, and then intractable epilepsy in her occipital lobe. So she's got a lot going on, but at the age of 12 now, she's thriving and she's in an essential skills class in her uh, local township school. Um, she receives vision services and orientation and mobility services. So she's learning to use a white cane and she's doing really well. I'm proud of how far she's come. It's been not the easiest journey. Nobody wants to see your child struggle and have challenges throughout their life, but you know, Lola doesn't know any different and we just celebrate all that she can do. And so that's, that's where we're at. I just love how honest you are about not knowing what was going on. I know so many people struggle with not knowing and not understanding. Yeah, it's difficult because you're seeking answers. And mm-hmm. when you can't find them, you learn early on, you have to be the advocate for your child, because if you're not, then then who will be if they can't speak up for themselves? You talk about the strides Lola has made and even attending school. In what ways do you prioritize her self-care needs? And what strategies have you found helpful in promoting her independence and well-being? Well, Lola is obviously the center of our universe. And our job in this life is to help her thrive. And so we have to teach her how to be independent. It doesn't come as natural to her and no matter what that will look like for Lola. Independence for her is different than it is for my son, Sebastian, who is neurotypical and has his sight. And we recognize that. But as much as I want to help her in every aspect of her life, I know that I can't because there is something called learned helplessness, which is very prevalent in children who are blind or visually impaired because we want to do everything for them. Who wants to see your kids struggle to accomplish a simple task? 
No parent does. And that's why we intervene to prevent that struggle. But all we do is set our kid up for failure because life won't always be catered to them. So I want Lola to be actively engaged in her life. I want her to make choices that lead to both success and failure. It's what any neurotypical sighted child would do. And so, you know, why shouldn't she? And so for her to be independent, she needs structure and she needs routine. And that's what we try to provide her every single day. If she knows what's to come, she can easily engage and she knows what she needs to do. Her morning routine, for instance, it was once led by her father and I, and now she wakes up at six and gets herself dressed and may not always be on the right way, but she picks her clothes every day and puts on her socks, wakes up her dad, comes downstairs for breakfast, reminds me that she needs to brush her teeth and take her medicine and finds her shoes, tells us she needs her backpack and cane and we're out the door. And you know, just five years ago, I wasn't sure if we'd get to this level of independence, but here we are. And, you know, Lola is doing exceptionally well. I can't wait to see, you know, all that she'll accomplish in the coming years. And it's kind of funny because I say she's just like any other 12-year-old. I mean, she wants to go shopping. She loves clothes and shoes. She wants me to paint her nails. <laughs> she has her face in a device watching YouTube videos and wants to FaceTime with her friends. And so all the things that I didn't know that she would do someday, you know, here she is going on with life as any other kid would. So it's been a lot of fun to see her grow in that way. I know you mentioned that you found support groups. What are some strategies for building a supportive community of fellow caregivers and allies who can offer emotional and practical support? Well, I guess I would say if you can't find it, build it. Um, <laughs> when Lola was first diagnosed with her rare genetic disease, it was only five letters and numbers. It was the NR2F1 gene mutation. There wasn't a name for the syndrome at the time. And the couple of case studies that were online didn't give me much information and it didn't give me any hope for her future. So um, I remember how lonely I felt. And when I looked online for support groups, there was nothing. And I knew if I felt alone, certainly there had to be another mom out there that was feeling the same way. And so I took action and began writing about the condition on my blog, Say Ola Lola. And not long after I published that first post about NR2F1, I received an email from a mom in California who actually had a son with the disease. And better yet, she was connected with another mom who had a daughter with it. And then other moms found me and it was so good to be able to share, you know, you're not alone. Eventually the genetic disease would finally get its name, the long <laughs> bosch boonster shape optic atrophy syndrome. And then myself and a small group of mighty parents would start what is now called the NR2F1 Foundation. And parents and caregivers and physicians and therapists now have a website to go to with information and resources that can really improve their loved one's quality of life. And we're raising funds for research, and now there's a family conference every couple of years. And then there's a Facebook group for parents, and there's one for grandparents so that they can feel connected to one another. It's amazing what we've accomplished. And while I wish I had this support early on in Lola's journey with the disease, 
I'm definitely glad that others now have a community of their own to rely on and connect with. It definitely makes all the difference in the world. I love how you talk about if you can't find it, build it, because I think we get so overwhelmed just in daily life, not thinking about all the therapies and all the things that our child is going through. But on top of that, I do a quick search and there's nobody like me, but you don't have the energy or anything to keep seeking it out. But I think that it's so important and your story goes to show that it can be done and that it needs to be done. And it's something that you need to allow yourself time for. Definitely. You go through, I guess I would say a grieving process when you learn that your child is going to experience the world differently. Mm -hmm. And so it might take a little time to go out and find that support group or connect with another person that has that same understanding as you do. But, you know, once you get there, it's nice to be able to post something that is intimate to us that nobody else could probably understand except for a parent that has a child with this rare genetic disease. And so to be able to, you know, get real guidance and insight and just be able to share our stories with one another. It just, it, it really has improved our quality of life and our ability to help care for Lola. How has your child's visual impairment impacted your own sense of self? And what lessons have you learned about resilience, adaptability, and advocacy? Lola was the first blind person I ever met. I mean, I had seen other people who are blind at my mom's restaurant back in Michigan, but I didn't know any of the customers. So when Lola was born and me having that feeling that something was wrong, I learned early on that I had to become that advocate for Lola. And then with her visual impairment at seven months of age, you know, just really pushing them to acknowledge that something was going on. And so had we not been persistent about that, it's hard to say what the trajectory of her life would be, especially if we had not gotten that CVI diagnosis so early on and had not known to start early intervention. And then same thing, I guess I would say with her seizures, when she was four months old, she had these strange movements and tics that were very unfamiliar that even a doctor looked at and said, oh, you know, it's just the Moro reflex. It's nothing. And finally at 3 a.m., I was on YouTube and I found a video of a baby doing the exact same thing. And again, it took my persistence in order to have someone believe me that something was going on with my baby. Mm -hmm. And so that did teach me to be resilient, no matter what the situation is, because it's such a unfamiliar territory. You don't want to be the pushy mom. <laughs> you don't want to be the one that is paging the doctor and sending emails and calling the office. But if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. I think that her ability to adapt to what her environment is now. I attribute much of my own and my husband's persistence of reading and 
getting as many tools and resources that we possibly could so we could set up our homes so that the vision she had could either improve or she could use it to the best of her ability. And so I think this has continued on for various stages in her life, whether it was fighting the insurance company for ABA services when she was participating in ABA, or whether it's sitting in on case conferences and developing IEP goals, making sure she gets the vision services she needs, or the amount of time she needs with her O&M specialist, everything to help her thrive both out in the world, within her community, at her school, and then having that translate at home. I would say that as hard as it is, you have to be that advocate for your child and their resilience really guide you along the way and teach you about what your own resilience is. I know that you said that Lola has developed these skills over the years that help her to thrive and she has a schedule now and things like that. When she was younger, and I'm sure there's still days today, but when she was younger and you were feeling like you would never get to this point, what did you do for yourself when you felt like you had to be there for her at all times? How were you able to care for yourself in your marriage and for Sebastian? That's a tough one because when you're in the moment, you want someone to look into their crystal ball and tell you that everything's going to be okay. You want someone to tell you that in the future, your child is going to do this, this, and this, meet this milestone, meet this inch stone at this time in their life. And that's not fair because Mm -hmm. it's not fair to your child and it's not fair to the person that you're asking for that help. But, you know, I think that what I've learned from it is just to really try to enjoy the moment today, not try to look too far into the future, because if I do, it can really, really scare me. Um, There are transitions that Lola's going to experience as she ages into adulthood that, you know, terrify me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can't go that far. I have to just stick with the now and really try to pay attention to the other relationships beyond my relationship with Lola. Sebastian is nine years old and has only grown up around his sister that has different abilities and different needs. And I think that as much as he's adapted his life to hers, we have to really pay attention to him and his mental health and his feeling of inclusion because I think that siblings often get overlooked and not purposefully, but because medication schedules and doctor visits and therapies and case conferences and things like that just come up and you're not trying to give your other child all the attention, but that's just how it happens. And so we've been really trying to put a focus on Sebastian and what his needs are. I'm often asked from other VIPs parents about or other parents that have a first child with special needs, you know, what made me decide to want to have a second child? Was I afraid that we were going to have another child with visual impairments or the rare genetic disease or any other type of issue? And I'll never forget, I had a friend tell me he has a son with autism and she said, 
it's just one more person to love them. It's going to make me tear up. And I just, it was, it was like exactly what I needed to hear in that moment of, of course, like, why wouldn't I want to try to have another baby? And I tell you, it was the best thing we could have done because not only do we have this wonderful human being, Sebastian, in our life, but he was the perfect distraction from Lola and mm-hmm. all of her needs. And I hesitate to say it like that, but I was so consumed by everything regarding Lola that I lost sight of everything else. And so when Sebastian came along, it was like, oh, oh, you know, I have this other person I have to take care of. And it can't be all about Lola all the time. And it made me recognize that I can still love her just the same, even if I give someone else attention, whether that be Sebastian or my husband or myself, it's not taking away from her. It's, it's, it's doing so much more for the family as a unit. So for other people that are just thinking about whether or not they would want to have an additional child that it's different for each family and each person, but I just never forget the words my friends said that it's just one more person to love them. And then thankfully, Rob and I, my husband, our marriage has grown as a result of all of this. I know that the statistic is somewhere like 70% of parents that have children with special needs will end up in divorce. And I, I get that because it adds a layer of stress that is unfathomable when you are <laughs> stressed about your child and their medical needs and money related to it and focusing on your relationship. But I really encourage respite time, taking time to remember why you started your love for one another in the first place and try to not talk about your kids all the time, uh, have adult conversations. And so we take advantage of some local organizations that provide respite And we rely on family members as well so that we can have a date night here and there and focus on our relationship. And then as far as myself, I have tried to, you know, exercise. I ride my bike for 30 minutes a day. Everybody knows to leave me alone during that time. I'm just going to listen to my music and take care of myself. Truthfully, I've had to seek out mental health help, doctors, because it's not easy raising a child with special needs. It's not easy raising a child with intractable epilepsy that we don't know what's going to happen to her if we don't catch a seizure. And so it can really take a toll on your mental health. I try to put each person in this family at the forefront at some point. I try to daily but some days it's easier than others. I think that's so encouraging. It's encouraging to me as a parent, and I hope our listeners, that when you're in those moments where you feel like you have no idea where life is going and what's going to happen, that I look at your story and you can try to put something else first or try to focus on something else. It doesn't have to be all-consuming because... I know that sometimes when you're in moments like that, your brain tells you this is how it's going to be forever and I can't get out and just so overwhelming. So I think that that's so encouraging. And I like what you say about not looking too far into the future and getting the help that you need as well.
I loved listening to Meredith's interview, and I loved, I think, especially hearing about Lola's progress over time, because I know Lola personally. When Lola was, maybe she was two, maybe one and a half, it was her very first Vips family retreat, and she came, and I was one of her caregivers, and to hear Meredith talk about Lola gets herself up in the morning and gets herself dressed and goes and and tells dad what she needs and as part of like the breakfast preparation for me to hear that as a teacher and a provider of services to like compare what Lola was doing back when she was a toddler to now she's preteen and she can do all these things for herself and care for herself and that she is so motivated to do that self-care for herself I just thought that that was really empowering for me yeah and I think it really speaks to her mom's and her just her whole family's support of of her of her self-care to to take care of what she needs to do so it sounds like they've really focused on that it's fun Mm -hmm. I think something else that Meredith didn't share that I'm sure she wouldn't mind me sharing is that sometimes Lola feeds their dog and teaching Lola to care for someone else is such a big deal and to see that progress of her you know scooping the food out and putting in the dog bowl and caring for the dog I think is such a big deal too that she's encouraging Lola to to not only care for herself but care for others. Yeah and I think a lot of that when she talks about the learned helplessness I love her focus on that, and I agree with Kathy that I think that it's a huge testament to Meredith and her husband and all the people around them that she says in there that she wants Lola to have successes and failures. So just like all of us have successes and failures, it can seem, maybe it can seem like harder or like harsh or mean to let them have failures. I don't I don't know how I'm trying to say this, but like, I feel like her just saying, you know, she can fail and that's a normal part of life and she has to experience that is a huge way that they are combating this learned helplessness. I don't think that any parent, I mean, or I think that all parents think they have to be perfect and do it, everything perfect and Clearly, we don't, whether your child has a visual impairment or not, your your child's going to have failures, and that's how we learn. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's important to say those things out loud and say, you didn't make this happen today, so what are we going to do the next time? <laughs> we learn so. the most, really, from reflection, mm-hmm. and... Regardless of whether you have a visual impairment or you're sighted, that learning still happens oftentimes from failures and it can really impact the way that you feel about yourself because you have that sometimes that like, oh man, I messed up or I don't know if I can do this. But then when you try again and you reflect about it based upon those reflections and the try again, then it's really empowering, which is, I think, a way to care for yourself to say that I can do this and that Lola can say, 
I can do this. And yeah, I, um, my mom let me make, you know, mistakes as I was along the way. And now I learned to do it by myself and I don't need somebody to help me with some of these things. Or at least I can try again and it's okay if I make a mistake Mm -hmm. again, but I'm, what's important to keep is to keep trying. Yeah. And I think Meredith and Rob did that for themselves as well. Just the advocacy at the beginning, trying to fight for her to get those early interventions. And even though they didn't know exactly what was going on with Lola. It didn't stop them from trying to move forward and work to get her what she needs. Mm-hmm. I liked hearing what they said as well about looking toward the future and sometimes that causing some anxieties and, you know, self-care is really, I think, involved in in that piece of it because you know knowing what to tell yourself whenever you're worried about things or whenever you're planning for the future can be part of that self-care so jenny what circumstances in your life have that happened in i mean i definitely will be reminding myself that meredith said that it's okay not to let yourself look too far in the future because someone like me that's a worrier that is something that i battle all the time and then also the fine line between the things that you do need to worry about in the future versus the ones that you don't. So for example, my husband and I recently just went through one of the VIPs programs um, with a financial planner and set up like a special needs trust and things like that. So that, that is something that had to be done now, even though it's something that won't be used until like the future future well hopefully you know after my husband and I are gone you know that's when it would <laughs> yes, be used. we want you to be around for a while please, yes. Jenny. <laughs> yes but <laughs> there's a difference between doing that and being organized and proactive and when I am at three o'clock in the morning like do I think that she'll be able to ride a bus by herself in a big city when she has a job at XYZ like there's a huge difference between the two and I kind of have to rein myself in and say okay what what is appropriate to worry about in the future and what is not appropriate to worry about right this second so it sounds like you're saying if you're worrying at 3 a.m that should be a red flag to have some time for (laughs) self-care when you get the look from your husband that's like Well, and to, I mean, if you're worrying all the time, then you can't enjoy the great things that are happening right now. And I think we all need to do that more, to take a step back and say, look at, look at what she's doing now. Look at what we're doing now. Or let's, let's go to the park today and have a good day and not think about what happens after we die or when they grow up or, you know, for, for 15 minutes so that we can enjoy each other. Cause mm-hmm. you just, just never practicing know. that Thanksgiving, <laughs> that being thankful. Absolutely. Um, I just, as the, as the researcher in the group here, I just want to, point out I love that Meredith talked about how important early identification is we know that many children with visual impairment are not identified early the average age for identification is like 18 months and for some kids that's just too late we can help them so much earlier so parents and Um, providers need to help 
find ways to identify kids earlier and from a it, it's great to hear that from a parent perspective of how that could have mm-hmm. helped if if she would have been identified with a visual impairment and she would have been part of that group even earlier than she was so yeah I liked hearing that Meredith felt confident in knowing that she needed to look for help when Lola wasn't making eye contact like right at birth and that being able to reflect upon that for herself and knowing that she needed to reach out for help I think that's just another way that Meredith was able to have to like practice care for herself you know in the way that's like of course that's caring for Lola but that's like allowing yourself to feel that feeling of like I know it's supposed to be this way and this you know like this is what I'm expecting you know will happen with my baby but it's not happening and it's okay to say it out loud even though that's really scary for me because she talked about some of those like feelings you know that she went through with with like the grieving process and stuff yeah and you don't want to sound crazy either to a doctor who might not bring it up but you're seeing it at home and you know the fear to say like what are they gonna think if I like how she talked about you don't want to be the one calling the doctor all the time and paging the doctor but I think just kind of you know, having that confidence in yourself just to ask those questions and kind of see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think parents should think about, you know, if you're if your child's doing something and nobody else is around, video it. Pull out your phone, video, and, and then you can show the doctor when you go to the pediatrician mm-hmm. or you can show someone else and, and like, I'm not imagining this. This is really <laughs> happening. So... Lots of kids have been diagnosed with lots of concerns just that way because a parent was on the ball and and was able to show. So parents know their yeah. baby's best. Mm-hmm. They just do. And when I'm in a home visit and a family shows me a photo or a video, I feel like sometimes that is just, that can be worth so much because, you know, maybe in that hour they don't do the thing that their family shares that they did. And they're always like, I promise they really do this. And I'm like, I believe you. I promise. I believe you. And then they show me a video and I'm like, oh my goodness, I see exactly what you're talking about. And that connection between myself and you listener as the family, for me as your provider, sometimes like that emotional connection can like really help me to like, not necessarily feel the same feelings as you because you know, you're in your life and I'm in mine and, and that kind of thing. But to like have that like emotional connection around, oh my goodness, you're concerned about this and I can be concerned about this with you. And it also reminded me, Kathy, of one of the things that I know about you with some of the research, you know, around hope and connecting with other families and like having that connection with others. Yeah. I love that Meredith really talked about that, um, that that was something that she considered self-care, that, that getting together with other people who have the same concerns, um, was really important to her because we do know that that hope research. So, you know, what is hope? How do you, how do you measure hope? That's a hard question and it's something we talk about at anchor center all the time because it's in our our vision statement right that i'm we're supposed to be providing hope to families so how can we measure 
that we're doing that. And that research shows that one of the ways that you can provide hope is for families to see others who are farther along in the process. So if we're talking about a baby, uh, a family that has a baby six months or under a year, and then they're able to go somewhere and see that there's a baby with a similar diagnosis or a similar level of vision, and they're in preschool or they're in kindergarten or they're eight or nine years old and that they're doing well. So they're walking down the hall using their cane or they're feeding themselves. And that's when your baby is six months old, sometimes it's really hard to, to think that that's ever going to happen. So being able to see other families and doing that is a way to to encourage that that hope in a parent that can make them feel more positive instead of thinking about all of the horrible things that could happen. (laughs) So Jenny, I have a question. So part of that research is adults with vision impairment and how they can be great role models for kids, for kids who have vision impairment. Mm -hmm. Does your daughter participate in any kind of program like that at all? Or has she had that experience? Um, so when she was at VIPS, you know, she was in class with kids that were like her and she does remember that as far as someone older than her, we only personally know one other visually impaired adult, but she does get really excited to see like on TV or the Paralympics and things like that. And she likes to learn about the people mm-hmm. like I think we've talked before that she's a swimmer and so she likes to learn about what their life is like out of the pool or if you're looking at something through history she likes to learn you know someone that had a visual impairment that you know overcame something and did this she's she's very interested and she knows that there's other people out there we don't know a lot of them I wish that we could and I know that you know as she grows we'll meet more. She does go with us still to VIPS events. So occasionally there's people at the races and things like that, that she sees. But as far as like a mentor thing, no, she doesn't have that. So, so that's, that would be for her, Mm -hmm. right? What about for you as a parent? Does it help? Do you feel like that is something that helps you to see older individuals who are successful that way? Yeah, for sure. And even even if I don't know the kids personally, if I've never met them or don't see anything other than, you know, what their parents post on Facebook, knowing the parents and like there's some VIPs, there's some other VIPs employees that have grown children. And sometimes just, you know, kind of like we talked about the balance of looking in the future, sometimes just to see that they're working adults they have a normal life like you wouldn't know if they didn't tell you and a lot of times just hearing stories about their kids you wouldn't know unless they told you it's encouraging that on those really hard days like we talked about with meredith where you feel like you can't get out or do anything i think that it's super encouraging to see like no look these people like they did survive this and you know everyone's thriving absolutely 
Well, thank you all so much for <laughs> joining us and talking with us about Meredith and her story. And I know that sometimes there might not be that person who is in your life every day, like for you, Jenny, and for your daughter, that, you know, it might not necessarily be that you have somebody that lives across the street mm -hmm. from you that you can be like, oh, they're doing okay. And maybe it might be a distance, you know, kind of that to me, uh, what would be like a parasocial relationship, I guess, where, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that person's on social media or maybe you see yes. them on TV, or maybe it's Meredith's story that you're connecting with and she's that encouragement to you. So I hope that that has been an opportunity for you to see that you're not alone and that Meredith has has gone through it and and Lola is doing amazing things and that Meredith is doing amazing things and they they have their ups and their downs and their struggles and their successes just the way that you do and we just hope that we are encouraging you today. Thank you so much for listening to Feeling This Life. Did you know that this podcast is actually part of a research study? By filling out the survey in the show notes, you can help our community learn more about how podcasts impact those who care for children who are blind and visually impaired. So please take a look when you're able. Also, if you'd like to support us in making more episodes of Feeling This Life, look for the donation link in the show notes. The show notes also include links to resources related to today's episode and ways to get in contact with us. Please join us again next time for another episode of Feeling This Life.